I'm Rob Trasinski. This is Salon of the Refuse, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Yaroslav Romanchuk. I got that right, didn't I? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty decent with the Eastern European names. <laughs> uh, Your name is also sounds you're uh, Polish. Yes, I am. I'm exactly. Uh, uh, back a couple generations by people came over, but right. I'm, I'm used to having my name mispronounced, so I try to my best to get other people's names right. Um, and he's the president of the Scientific Research Mises Center uh, in Belarus. And he's here to talk today about what's happening in, in Belarus. And I kind of want to just start in the middle of the action, which is catch us up. Uh, I've covered this a little bit in my newsletter, but catch us up on what's been going on for the last couple of weeks and, and the state of things right now. Uh, it's been uh, more than two weeks that uh, Belarus is in the... Uh, Belarus, uh, the revolution of order, I would say, right? But the revolution is that uh, the revolution of what the people want order, orderly I, I revolution, revolution of, of of white flowers, revolution of. Uh, uh, let me explain order because many people believe that if we have revolution, we have chaos, we have disorder, we have dirt, we have dysfunctioning government and stuff like that, and uh, people who just riot and burn cars in Belarus. Uh, probably this is the only country in the world where people uh, people have, uh, when they demonstrate, when they walk out and uh, take part in rallies, they uh, collect rubbish after them and uh, streets and squares are cleaner after uh, demonstration than before. And even the, some uh, cartoonists uh, describing the situation in Belarus uh, just de described or, or uh, drew the picture of a Belarusian who uh, protested against the government and he took off his shoes in order to step on the bench. So just <laughs> not, not to, to uh, destroy the bench. And, but, um, so this is unique. Uh, the things that uh, ignited uh, the overwhelming majority of Belarusians protesting against the current regime and our dictator uh, as follows. First, uh, bad handling of coronavirus crisis. Uh, the government lied completely to the people about the status of this disease. Uh, the and, he, and he, kept, he kept telling you that what, like whiskey was a cure or vodka was a cure for the disease or something like that. Well, at one point he said that, you know, you cannot, do you see a coronavirus? No, that's, that's why it does not exist. <laughs> so it, it reminded me of... Uh, of uh, the previous uh, wonderful insight he had on inflation. He said, you see, we print money. Uh, do you see any inflation? No, but you see buildings that were built because of this printed money. This is kind of the same kind of uh, intelligence that he, uh, that he revealed to the people. And uh, uh, that was the first uh, uh, catalyst. The second was, of course, when Lukashenko, he lost majority of two, two uh, the housewife, uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, and he couldn't stand it. And uh, the Central Election Commission, which is the center of fraud and falsification, declared that he got over 80% of the vote, which was like insane. And the third, which was probably the final decisive straw that broke the camel, the back of the regime, was the severe beating, torture, and the brutality of police against ordinary people that lasted for three days, 9th till 11th of August. And the, the uh, assumption was that this kind of brutal force would uh, make Belarusians frightened, obedient, and they would just agree with whatever the government said. Uh, the result was quite the opposite. Uh, to, 
to pol political opposition, civil society opposition, workers for the first time in 26 years joined forces because uh, at one uh, uh, of the factories when uh, there was a third shift which ended like in 1 or 2 a.m., workers were walking along the street and they were beaten severely by a special police force. They thought that that was a demonstration. They didn't, couldn't realize that there were workers going home. And that ignited uh, outrage and uh, dozens of state enterprises even joined the strike saying that we demand not just additional perks, uh, cheap loans or what we call sausage, they demanded freedom, they demanded free and fair elections, releasing everybody from prison, and of course, uh, thorough investigation of all these brutality cases and torture. And um, so Svetlana Tikhanovska, who was uh, tortured, who essentially won the election, he was psychologically tortured, tortured, and she left Belarus, she's in Lithuania. We, she, we call her in, uh, president-elect. Lukashenko still resists any um, uh, attempt, even thought, to negotiate with anybody on power transition. Uh, the only uh, meaningful force that uh, stands by him is Russia. But at the same time, Russia is reluctant to support him against the people. Because if Russian, Russia now involves, then uh, that would be against the overwhelming majority of the people. And Putin, instead of getting, gaining support of Belarusians, would lose support and Belarus would turn its back on Russia. And so we are in this, uh, every like Sunday, we've got two Sundays, demonstrations about 300,000 people in Minsk, which Minsk have never seen uh, earlier. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's, put that, let's put that into a little context because, you know, Americans tend not to know much right. about other countries out, right. out there. So uh, Belarus right. has a population of like nine or 10 million. Um, yeah, 9.4 million. Yeah. And the population of Minsk is uh, about 2 million. But uh, we have never seen any demonstration like that, right. like 300,000 all the cities, all the major streets and squares were, uh, were taken by demonstrators with waving our national flags, which were banned by Lukashenko. So it's like a revolution uh, in the air, spirit of freedom everywhere, joy. At the same time, we realized that uh, Lukashenko, he surrounded his uh, palace with uh, special uh, forces. And uh, there was like a funny uh, story on Sunday when demonstrators no, sang songs in front of these barricades uh, erected by uh, special forces, and they were left. Lukashenko landed on the helicopter, and he was carrying a machine gun uh, in his hand, and his younger son also had 16-year-old in violation of law, also was carrying a, a machine gun, a Kalashnikov. And that was like, why? Nobody's going to shoot you, nobody's going to attack your palace, just forget about we are peaceful people. But he's so frightened that he can hardly understand what's going on. And this is the result of the, uh, of, of the policies he's been pursuing for 26 years. And the guy I, who restored... Right. I, I'd like to unpack a couple of things here. So Svetlana Tikhonovska uh, was the presidential candidate. And I think it's interesting how she got that way, because it was her husband who was originally running. And he was arrested right. in order to basically, because he was considered a threat, so he was arrested. And they, my understanding is they sort of let her go on the ticket because Lukashenko's attitude was, well, she's just a housewife, how much of a threat she can be. Yeah, can exactly. Be? Well, and what happened is all well, the was, different, and everybody basically united against her as the unity candidate on a single platform of holding free and fair elections. Free and fair elections. You're absolutely right. Uh, Svetlana Tikhanovska 
uh, has never been in politics. She doesn't belong to any political party. Nobody knows, and she doesn't know whether she belongs to liberals, social democrats, or socialists. It's like ir irrelevant in, at, at this point. Right. Thing is that uh, when her husband, there was a provocation, and of course her husband was put uh, put uh, behind bars, and everybody thought that well, that that that's it. Uh, but at the same time, Babarika, the strongest candidate, uh, ex-banker, he, he chaired the Russian bank in Belarus for 20 years, but him, he assembled much support from uh, people of culture, from uh, opposition, saying that he's got like running as a lot of the technical candidate. He, he also did not uh, clarify his position, though his views were like uh, quite dubious. But yeah. he was the one to ignite interest in politics for many Belarusians. The third one was an uh, ex-IT guy who chaired an IT park in Belarus, quite popular. Uh, at the same time, he again, he did not belong to any political uh, movement, and he was silent for three years. So the emergence of three people who, in this or that degree, were somehow connected with Russia was kind of met by us in opposition. We've been fighting with the regime for over uh, 25 years with caution. But when one of when two of them were in prison, when the third uh, was also a part of uh, criminal investigation, that it was obvious that well, it well, no, that's for liberty. We uh, have just one thing that is common to us: hold free and fair election and free all political prisoners. And that's why Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, as a candidate for transition, was ideal. And everybody said, okay, we, it, it's not about any values, any economic program. That's for a chance for Belarus to become free, democratic, and, and, uh, and finally. And that's why I said it's not about Tikhanovska, that's about the process. And that, as a result, we have now tons of evidence. Our uh, elections were rigged, our results were falsified. Well, I, I, well, let we me talk like, about that a little, little bit, too. Let me talk about that a little bit too, because I think that's a fascinating aspect of the story is that you basically, I mean, you knew the election was going to be rigged because you know, this guy's been, yeah. Lukashenko's been power, in power for 26 years and he didn't get there by holding free elections. I think the last exactly. election, the last election that outsiders have even bothered to monitor as if it might yeah. be fair was in 1994, if I recall. 1994, exactly. Yeah, You're yeah. right. So, so you knew it was going to be rigged. So there were some interesting things that people did to basically counteract that. And I thought it was interesting that folding their ballots in a particular way so that you could see if you just saw a pile of ballots, you could see visually what the majority of them were, that the majority of them were for the opposition. So that oh, you that's could- just one thing. Then we have, uh, for example, like over a uh, third of all ballot stations, we mm -hmm. had a parallel vote count. And uh, according to this parallel vote count, we had ballot uh, papers uh, ballot uh, result protocols of the uh, voting. Uh, one is real and one is falsified, one thing. Then we had this uh, voting uh, internet platform called Voice, or Vote rather, that also sampled a lot of information analyzing from uh, like 35 or 40% of all ballot stations. And that was mathematically proven that Svetlana Tikhanovskaya's vote was stolen and uh, Lukashenko uh, had his vote added. So uh, again, a lot of votes, uh, observers, uh, like for example, we had this weird procedure that uh, elections voting started on Tuesday, like five days before the real day of election. And uh, this time uh, the record was set as over 41% of all voters cast their votes earlier, which is absurd. You know? yeah. And all the, there's no observation, no monitoring of these votes. 
and all these, like even with this kind of um, advantage, Lukashenko couldn't win. He couldn't even afford having free and fair election on the day of election, having over 41% of advantage. So, and you know, even right, right now after elections, Lukashenko, we don't see any crowds hailing the guy who won uh, landslide with over 80% of majority. He had to force, uh, to use administrative resource and force to assemble people and to support him, which sounds, you know, weird. Yeah. So kind of it's, it's workers, intel, well, uh, opposition, civil society, businessmen, everybody is against Lukashenko and every, but right now it's not, for me, that's more than just, you know, politics. That's about humanitarian aspects. And you know, you can, even Nazis in the Second World War did not treat Belarusians that badly as the Belarusian police. And Lukashenko is in denial of this. He said, no, 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 it did not. No, probably we over-exaggerate a little bit, but you can pardon police. But you, you have like people who were murdered. You have about 30 persons at least who are missing still. We have people who were so uh, ba uh, beaten so badly that uh, they will become disabled people by the end of their lives. We have rapes of women and men. Mm. And not a single criminal investigation was opened by general prosecutor's office. It's outrageous. And when Russia especially started talking, well, this Ukrainian scenario, it's worse the West versus Russia, it's just absurd. Because now people use different languages. We again, nobody is now discussing the subtleties on uh, where Belarus should go and how. It's about justice, about uh, stopping violence, and about uh, tremendous, outrageous lies that Lukashenko has been you know, spreading all over. So I want to I want to go. The big question in my mind is why now? Because you know Lukashenko has been in power for twenty six years. This is he's called Europe's last dictator. There was never really much of a post Soviet period uh, in 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 Belarus, and it sort of seems in many ways like a museum of Stalinism, down to the fact that there are a large number of still a large number of state owned enterprises. You know, state factories you know, running under five year plans, presumably. Um, so why is it that, and I know there have been some demonstrations before 10, 15 years ago, there were some, you know, uh, some, some demonstrations against the regime, but why, why now is it breaking out? Yeah. Why is, why you know, after, after so long under yeah, this right. regime, why is it coming apart now? Um, you rightly said that uh, uh, we had demonstrations, like when I ran for president, I was presidential candidate in 2010. Uh, and we also, there was a big rally of about 50,000 people in December 2010, and, but the society was not ready for that mm -hmm. yet. But we essentially, we like worked hard in order to keep this uh, fuel, this uh, fire of uh, freedom in the air. Uh, right now, first, as I said, uh, catalyst. Uh, first, uh, very, when the government is like, it owns about 80% of all assets. Uh, it uh, still holds monopoly on healthcare education. And when Corona crisis happened and people wanted to get some assistance from Belarusian Leviathan, Lukashenko said, I don't have money. And he kept uh, supporting uh, loss-making enterprises, which outrage many people say, well, they've been on our uh pay on our next for 26 years and still cannot run businesses profitably so that was like without why you have so uh, the uh, budget of belarus in 2019 was over 26 billion dollars 
And with this kind of money, Lukashenko uh, refused to give any assistance to uh, small businesses, to entrepreneurs, to anybody who was infected in any way. So that was one thing. Secondly, as you rightly said, 26 years, people are tired of the same guy for 26 years of his lives. Then many people who worked abroad uh, due to coronavirus came to Belarus and they were like locked in the country. And they're the people who know how, what is, what life looks like in Poland, in Lithuania, in, uh, in Europe in general. So they, they cannot buy this kind of lies about uh, the advantages of Belarusian social economic model. Yeah, I, that, that, that's one thing that strikes me, by the way, which is I remember reading about one of the demonstrations that was happening. This is probably like 2005, 2006, there was something like that. And there was a young demonstrator who was interviewed by the reporter. And he said, I've traveled around. I've traveled outside of, yeah. outside of Belarus. I've, I've traveled through Europe and America. Yeah. I know what things, what, what's going on out there in the world. And yeah. this isn't normal, what's going on back here. And that really struck me. Absolutely. And, and the fact, the idea that the coronavirus would intensify that by bringing a lot of yeah. people, and it's almost like it's almost like traveling abroad, letting your the, the most talented and dynamic people travel abroad, is a safety valve for the regime because yeah, they're not exactly. home causing trouble. But now with coronavirus, they're home. Yeah, that's what uh, kept Lukashenko so for such a, in power for such a long time. Because after e political campaigns or presidential and parliamentary elections, we had an outflow of young people, energetic people, civil society activists to the West, like 2001, 6, 10, 15, and a wave of people who are very energetic, knowledgeable, and uh, with a value uh, foundation, they left the country. Now they are back. Not all of them, but most of them, uh, some of them are inside the country. Another factor, uh, for the first time, Lukashenko did not get uh, open support from Russia. His, uh, he broke the Putin's plan in the end of 2019 to uh, stay in power for Putin without constitutional referendum inside Russia, because Putin wanted to have this union state and essentially suggested merger, political merger between Russia and Belarus and him as a president. Lukashenko refused that, and uh, for the first time, there was a uh, down of, of all relations. No get good gas agreement, no good oil agreement. There was the situation we live next to Russia, and Lukashenko uh, regime uh, imported oil from the United States. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, he couldn't get in terms with Russian oil, oil oligarchs. So, and Russia did not support him uh, informationally and diplomatically either. And even now, when Lukashenko appealed to Putin, he's like, okay, now you are with us, uh-huh. Uh, you've been criticizing us and uh, blaming us on uh, breaking your uh, Belarus sovereignty for at least 12 months. Another factor uh, that, again, now is in, brought us to revolution. Workers, for the first time, mm. they realized that they are not just a proletariat that is paid by the regime and state enterprises. They realize that they are citizens, that they can have some say in how the country is run. And they again join uh, political opposition, join civil society, because uh, they felt, well, we need safety, we need security, we need a kind of justice. Why are Belarusians beaten by Belarusian police? And again, Lukashenko lost uh, workers, lost people who uh, worked for, for the budget, I mean, with teachers, doctors, because uh, in May, uh, uh, in the 1st of May, Lukashenko ordered all uh, school kids go back to school 
saying that no coronavirus, so it's safe to go. But uh, he left uh, it to parents to decide whether kids should go or not. And 70% of parents refused to send their kids to school due to coronavirus threat. And that was, again, revolt. And Rukhachanka did not realize how serious and how deep this uh, crisis of trust is. That is why he, uh, again, he missed another three months of aggression. And he said, uh, again, uh, in 2015, when he ran uh, for re-election, he used some free market rhetoric, uh, okay, to his privatization event. Right now, he said, oh, Soviet planning again, Soviet investments, Soviet this, Soviet that. And he's like stuck back in time, like for at least 40 years. That is why young people who uh, do not remember to, uh, 2010 protests now grew up there 2025. And for them, this is why we should, should we tolerate this kind of behavior of the, of the guy? And they also, they uh, ignited the protest and uh, kind of made it uh, quite obvious with, again, final factor, uh, uh, very good and very intense um, penetration of social networks to the, and messengers. Telegram channel, Viber, uh, social networks, now they are much more influential than they were 10 years ago. Mm. So all these factors combined, we have it now. So, so one other aspect I want to talk about this, you've right, described this as a re revolution of order. And what I've been hearing from yeah. some sources is that orderliness is like a very big Belarusian value. They're having an orderly yeah. society. And, yeah. and I, I've heard it described as almost a, in some ways a, a reaction to the fact that, you know, Belarus, like a lot of your neighbors, got the brunt end of, of the mid 20th century, you know, of World <laughs> War II and, it, you know, tremendous destruction in the country and the idea of having order and peacefulness and not having chaos is important, because, you know, especially given that history. And it strikes me that it basically was because Lukashenko was the one who broke that by having, you know, using the, the force of brutality against demonstrators, that he was the one who broke that sense of orderliness and in a way that turned that Belarusian value that would be in his favor against him. Well, let's, uh, again, uh, every foreigner who comes to Belarus is so much shocked and surprised because, you know, when you talk about uh, Soviet Union, that's kind of a deficit country, uh, you, you expect it to have a mess. But right now, something that is part of Lukashenko's uh, PR campaign and uh, his uh, brand that, oh, Belarus is such an orderly country, it's clean streets and everything. But right. Belarus was was clean all the time, all in history. when. My parents, for example, when we live in a small town, every like three times a year, we cleaned everything around, uh, painted fences without any order, without any government intervention. That's part of our culture. Uh, right now, Lukashenko, he did not like just break the order. He broke this fundamental uh, moral value uh, structure because beating innocent people, uh, for example, I, I, when we took part in the demonstration, uh, an old lady was walking uh, uh, to a shop uh, like at 9 p.m. and she was beaten brutally by special forces because she, they thought that she was like part of the demonstration. So the protesters had to bring her back home because she couldn't walk. And all these pictures suddenly became uh, obvious to people through Telegram channel. We have this Nechta live tele uh, Telegram channel which turned uh, grew the biggest in the world over 2 million subscribers. That is the major 
information source for all Belarusians now. This is like a, uh, and it's not done by a special corporation. Like four guys, uh, young guys under 25, uh, made it possible uh, working from Poland. Everybody uh, streamed their videos, pictures, stories to them, and now the whole country sees that. It's over two, two million, two and point two million subscribers uh, this Telegram channel has. And again, that's what uh, people saw that this is what, why to using uh, uh, rubber bullets, using uh, uh, grenades, uh, shooting at people, killing people. And again, right now, and there is kind of this outrage people more, the irresponsibility, like this kind of, uh, of Lukashenko. Like he said, uh, he uh, awarded people who beat people instead of uh, opening criminal cases. And that again, uh, now the conflict is so deep that I do not see any way that Lukashenko could stay in power. It's a matter of time when the regime uh, is down and when we hear free and fair election. And this is when we, with our ideas, step in because unlike many other countries, we've been working on the blueprint for reforms for many years. And we have uh, a monetary policy reform, fiscal budgetary taxation, uh, pension, prioritization. We have draft orders presented and discussed by uh, intellectuals, by uh, uh, experts, and we are ready to start from immediately when, when we have power, and definitely we would not rely on IMF, World Bank, UN uh, recommendations, which screwed up so many reforms in transitional countries. Now, by by we you mean sort of a, a by we you mean sort of a broad coalition of different yeah, broad coalition of uh, I drafted, uh, started drafting uh, pieces of legislation for shadow government from 1997. I worked for the parliament starting from 1995, when that was a general democratic elected parliament, wrote 12 books about different uh, story, different kinds of reforms and how to avoid mistakes uh, made by other countries. So uh, we know how to do that. We now need uh, political power and we need uh, force uh, trust which are determined to build both inside the country and with our uh, international community. Now, now let's talk about the prospect for that because you know the, the whole question is: Is this going to succeed? You know, you say Lukashenko probably can't keep power. The thing I'm noticing is you know the, the key one of the key indicators is always what's going on with the pillars of support of the regime. So you know the, the one of the big things is the the workers are on strike because the yeah. factory workers have been sort of his base of support yeah, politically. Exactly. And I've heard about a, f a few stories about people from the security forces defecting. Um, I don't think Still that's happened. Still too few. Still yeah, too exactly. few. It's not, it's not very many, but a few. And yeah. also people in the state-owned media resigning and saying we're not going to be part of the propaganda anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. So you see certain sort of dominoes falling. But I think after, you know, up through about the mid-2000s, there was almost this, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union from 1989 to the mid-2000s, there was almost a sense of inevitability about these things because we'd seen it happen so many different places, mass protests, and then the regime falls, and it sort of demoralized the regimes and, and uh, uh, encouraged the people in each of these cases. In the last 10 or 12 years, it's been, there's been more examples of dictators who just brass it out and defy that. So there's a less of that sense of inevitability. What is your, I mean, you, you clearly have a more optimistic view. Why do you think that fundamentally that this is going to succeed? Uh, 
uh, when you talk about this stakeholder approach, right? So who is a stakeholder of Lukashenko's regime, right? Mm-hmm. Who could uh, put his money, his trust, his future with him? He's got, he built this like family-based uh, business. Uh, his eldest son controls security forces. His younger son, middle son, he is in charge of sport and business. And uh, well, he doesn't trust anybody. Now he, uh, he's got special, uh, his uh, personal guards are, are not from Belarus. Uh, he is cured by Chinese uh, doctor. So uh, of course there are like generals who uh, are in charge of uh, the military, in charge of police, and uh, you have KGB, you have eight intelligence. And uh, formally these guys uh, are loyal to Lukashenko. But what future do they have when he stays in power for not like five years. Zero, mm-hmm. he's okay, they will get there, uh, but they have relatives, they have uh, some prospects. And something that uh, we should keep in mind that Russia doesn't want him to stay in power. Russia mm-hmm. sees that um, he's, uh, he's gone. Right. And he's like a liability. He's not a, a kind of, he doesn't bring any value to any, uh, even to Russia. So the well, challenge for us is, uh, that if Lukashenko, he's got support from, formal support from Russia, but it's kind of reluctant support. But if uh, Russia sends force, then that will be the end of uh, Russia's support uh, inside Belarusian society. So it is not likely to happen. If uh, we have free and fair election, then that will be, uh, Lukashenko will be a gun. No way for him to stay in power. If he uh, stays in power for another year, then economic and social crisis will kill him because right now we have... Uh, when uh, from 9th of August, Belarusian ruble lost about 10% after 25% devaluation from the beginning of the year. So uh, there is no financials uh, and um, uh, monetary foundation to keep him going because as you said, right, many Belarusians felt and know how it, life should be built and how it should be arranged. And uh, he doesn't support of red directors. He doesn't support of uh, even budgetary workers. So it's like many, we have overwhelming majority of stakeholders for change and we have a uh, diminishing number of, uh, and less and less, fewer and fewer people who, and uh, structures, organizations who support him. So in this situation, when we, when political crisis is augmented or enhanced by economic crisis, by um, a fiscal financial crisis, then what uh, could he deliver to even to police, to people who support him? They would also lose money, but you can hardly uh, keep power with 3,000 loyal uh, policemen or special troops that are around him. No way. So it's like uh, the circle around him is uh, getting tighter and it's a matter of time. Uh, if he uh, loses touch with reality completely, he can start, you know, brutality. But with brutality, he will ignite more brutality from the people. And that would lead to bloodshed, which uh, I don't like to see. But if that happens, uh, then the, there would be like, and some people call him Lukashenko, calling Lukashenko yeah. and Ceausescu. Yeah, the Ceausescu solution, which is he finally yeah. gets, you know, the people up, rise up and finally gets taken out yeah, back and shot. Exactly. Um, now, the, you know, the, the position of Russia is what I find most interesting because, you know, I, I noticed when arranging this interview, you're in the same, same time zone as Moscow. So this is yep. very, very close in to Russia. Now, for people, like I said, Americans tend not to know the geography of things of, uh, outside <laughs> the country that well. But you're sort of tucked in underneath 
the Baltic states, uh, so between Poland and the Baltic states and, and Russia, and I think a border with Ukraine as well. Um, so so like just uh, give you uh, uh, distance wise. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 750 kilometers to Russia, to Moscow, to Warsaw, and to Kiev. So yeah. the capitals of Russia, uh, Ukraine, and uh, Poland are equally distant from our capital. Right, right. So that, that what strikes me is how the importance and the dilemma this creates in a way for, um, uh, for, for Putin. Because on the one hand, he has this fractious relationship with Lukashenko. He tried to absorb... Uh, Belarus back into Russia because you know he thinks the breakup of the Soviet Union was a great tragedy. He wants to reabsorb yeah. everybody. Lukashenko didn't want to do it, so he has no love lost with Lukashenko. But at the same time, he can't pot. You know, in, in a way, he he doesn't really have an interest in having a democratic society that close no, in. Uh, I know that was one of the you know now in, that was it was a more intense issue with Ukraine because in the Orange Revolution there the Ukrainians were very openly pro Europe and pro European yep. Union. And that created this almost like geopolitical thing of like, we're going to ally with, you know, your rivals over here in Europe. That's not happening in Belarus, but there's still this idea that, and, and I think this is part of what happened in Ukraine, that having free elections in a free society in a place where dissidents can go, that's so close into Moscow, so close into Russia, where people, I know there's a Belarusian is a separate language, but most Belarusians, I presume, speak Russian. Speak Russian, right. Yeah, and it's the same thing with, with Ukraine, that there's Ukrainian and Russian, so there's linguistic ties, there's cultural ties, there's, it's geographically close, it's something he considers, a lot of Russians still consider sort of a traditional part of Russia, that that has to have a big impact of having these free societies rising up in Ukraine and the Baltic states, and now in Belarus, free societies with free elections in areas that are so culturally and geographically close into Russia. That's got to be a special threat for him. Well, definitely, we, uh, when you talked about Lukashenko as less dictator, uh, at one point Lukashenko said, well, uh, I'm less but one. Putin is the last one because he's, you know, uh, when we compare uh, the, uh, the strength of dictatorships you have Lukashenko, well, we have problems with him, but at the same time, you can hardly compare him to Putin, right. whose uh, list of atrocities and bad deeds definitely exceeds that of Lukashenko uh, by, by all means. So, of course, uh, you can hardly expect Moscow to bring democracy and freedom, and we realize that. And, uh, but again, when we talk about attitude of people, only 3% of Belarusians would like to see a merger political merger between Belarus and Russia. So like Belarus would cease to exist as an independent state. Most of us would like to have three, like normal trade, uh, investment, relations, contacts without borders. So essentially describe that for freedoms, movement of goods, uh, services, money, and, uh, and people or labor. That's the ideal for uh, Belarusians. And when we uh, talk about normalization of relations, the current integration model benefits uh, nomenclature and force structures big guys with a lot of connections and they ignore like internationally international groups that are made of russians and belarusians oligarchs and uh and force structures joined to make to squeeze juices from both russia and belarus that's what happened and when you talk there are a lot of um, 
there is a lot of misunderstanding in Russia about the so-called the mode of relations between Russia and Belarus, because many Russians argue that, oh, we gave you like over $120 billion of uh, support, and you don't appreciate this kind of support. So, uh, so they have this grudge that Ru Belarusians don't appreciate that. When you start to uh, break it down, I said, well, who benefited from this? Do you believe that Belarusian citizens, Belarusian uh, consumers, <laughs> Belarusian uh, ordinary people? No. Look at these oil guys. Look at this gas guy, energy guy. You know, these people who's, uh, who control uh, smuggle, who smuggle goods from uh, Europe through Belarus to Russia. These are all people who have uh, very powerful, we call the roofs or protection guys in FSB in four structures. And they are the biggest beneficiaries. So if you want to have a good relation with Belarus, make it free market, make it simple, make it uh, force your oligar oligarchies and monopolies into free market mode of behavior. This is what should happen. And this is not against Russia. This is those big guys who uh, suck blood of uh, both uh, peoples and both countries. And when you start talking about this, they all, oh, really? So, because this is what uh, should that Putin should draw attention not to Belarus as a as a parasite of Russia's generosity, but should, he should draw attention to his own stooges, his own oligarchs who surrounded him and uh, and uh, essentially uh, make business at the expense of Russian taxpayers, at the expense of Russian consumers. And we start talking like more in more detail. Russia, uh, well, uh, tries. Uh, to think a little bit, because before that, uh, we in the civil society and like thinkers and scholars were isolated from this Russian Belarusian relations. Lukashenko didn't want anybody to be involved. So and that was like this. Uh, many Russians believe that Lukashenko is the only representative of Belarus. And so when we, I speak Russian, I speak uh, Polish, I, I've got Polish roots again. They say, well, I'm, you cannot describe me as somebody, as some, somebody well, I, against Russia. I'm, I cannot be against Russian people. I am against monopolies. I'm against uh, interventionism. I'm against Leviathans, both in Russia and Belarus. And that is kind of an uh, opening to many Russians as well. That's a great transition because I wanted to talk about, um, you know, you talked about how we, you've worked on transition plans and, you know, policy proposals for what to do. But I know you've also been very active in, I've heard you've also been very active in spreading objectivist ideas about liberty, about reason, about the nature of government in, in Belarus and in Russia and in Eastern Europe. So why don't you yeah, talk about uh, that a little bit? I've... Uh... I'm objective with 20, 70 years of experience, <laughs> probably the oldest in Belarus, no doubt about it. <laughs> and uh, I remember when I, uh, my friends, um, what I call American parents, uh, Charles and Susanna Tomlinson, they, uh, when they were on a fact-finding mission in Belarus, they presented me uh, with Atlas Shrugged, which again turned my life upside down. Before that, I was a linguist, I was an English teacher, university teacher, and after that, I, uh, I became a businessman, entrepreneur, and then an analyst and scholar in economics, and again, in, uh, in, in society in general. And uh, in 1994, I even wanted to set up objectivist political party in Belarus. So I gathered enough signatures to set it up, and then <laughs> uh, some of my colleagues said, well, we are setting up a classical liberal party uh, why don't we join forces? So essentially, the Ayn Rand ideas were 
the foundation, uh, philosophical, moral foundation for my ideas, which were then enhanced by Austrian School of Economics, Mises, uh, human action. And uh, so I uh, translated and um, published like 500 copies of both Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead in Belarus. Because the first translation was initially lost by my friend in St. Petersburg. And uh, so we had to do it from scratch. And then uh, in 1999 or 2000, uh, with my uh, Russian friend Andrei Leonov, who that time was Putin's advisor on right. economic policy, we had a press conference presenting Ayn Rand to Russia, which was a very big event. And I think that we ignited the interest of Alpina Publishing House, which again then made another translation. And so that was, we started the process of uh, Ayn Rand uh, like um, uh, interest. Mm -hmm. And uh, since that time, now Ayn Rand is in best-selling uh, books in Russia. It was published in Ukraine. Uh, it is in Belarus. And well, I'm so happy that I was the one who like built the foundation of objective of the Ayn Rand ideas in the Russian-speaking world. And right now, when we uh, Ayn Rand definitely helps understand uh, the reality we have, helps understand, uh, well, uh, epistemology, ethics, and every time I promote economic reforms, I keep that in mind because very many people in my part of the world, they uh, have this justice, uh, equality, uh, values as their basis of reasoning. So if you understand how to interpret that properly, then you end up not with uh, Marxism and Leninist approach, but with the right approach, which is based on philosophy and Rand, and uh, and and science. So how how well do you think? I mean, how receptive an audience has it achieved? I mean, it's got to be a long way to go culturally because of the deep roots of uh, uh, of, of authoritarianism and of a of a sort of a strong government kind of a you know strongman approach in Russian culture going you know back thousands yeah. of years. It's it's a big challenge, but now we have uh, Ayn Rand website, we have Ayn Rand conferences, we have scholars who uh, wrote PhDs on Ayn Rand works. So it's the beginning, which yeah. again, first we just, we were the first like uh, crusaders or missionaries <laughs> in this way. Well, then uh, right now it's spreading. We have like uh, in uh, social networks, we have groups dedicated to Ayn Rand objectivism over uh, 50,000 subscribers. We have uh, teachers at universities. So at one point, I presented uh, by 150 copies to, of uh, a fountainhead to two Belarusian universities. Again, Linda Abrams, my dear friend, uh, presented me with the books and uh, she, they collected the books and sent me to Belarus. And uh, that was kind of no, the way to, you give a, a book and you expect somebody to read it and to uh, start thinking. So right. thinking is crucial. And right now, when um, I'm proud to associate, uh, the only reason I ran for parliament three times, I ran for president, was to test ideas. Because yeah. my idea is that, you know, these ideas are not for like eggheads, this idea for ordinary people. And uh, it works. Uh, you know, in 2010, with zero uh, support, uh, in the beginning, I got about 10% of the general vote, over about 800,000 people which again is a good result uh, in the case when you realize that it is in the authoritarian country. Right, right now I'm 
I have the biggest uh, audience of uh, among all economists and thinkers on Facebook, contacts and, and classmates. So the audience about 300,000 people of Russian speaking mostly. Now this is, you know, you, you, you do your work every day and suddenly you understand that uh, many more people are interested in ideas than, than before. And that's well, fascinating. Yeah, well, there's certainly a very great need for it. And I think that's even good to intensify. I mean, if as you become a free society, the yeah. question is of what should we do with this freedom is going to become even more intense so that you have people even thirstier for what do we do now, now that we have a choice over it. Uh, yeah, so I, have a, I have a concrete plan what to do in uh, different areas. That's why, you know, I uh, wrote so many different reform proposals to different people. Uh, even at present, I'm a member of the governmental group on tax reforms. And uh, I made a very clear presentation of my tax proposal, not only to Belarus, but to Russia, to Ukraine, to Tunis, all countries in transition, all developing countries. Uh, after uh, this window of opportunity, the Arab Spring, you have like Ukraine, different revolutions. The reason they screwed up three or four revolutions already is that they didn't have any blueprint for reform. They started this matrix of interventionism instead of thinking what should be done. My dear friend, Kaka uh, Bindukidze, who was like an out of the box guy, who uh, designed uh, economic reforms in Georgia back in 2004, uh, succeeded because of the fact that he was free market and he acted beyond this uh, rigid and uh, unworkable solution offered by mainstream international organization. Likewise in Belarus. My main opponents are not Marxists from the government because the, uh, uh, the good thing is that Lukashenko has never described himself as a liberal or market person. So let's right. clear cut. I'm a free market person and he's a, a Marxist Leninist guy. And when we started reforms, many people would realize that, yeah, we had enough of that. Let's try something different. And the only different model that neither Belarus nor Russia nor Ukraine ever tried is capitalism and free market. Well, I, I hope that your optimistic view of, of the government falling, Lukashenko losing his support, I hope that that works out on a, on a faster timetable. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you can hang on we for a long time. We yeah, do no. our best. We not just keep our fingers crossed, but we I, do our best. I mean, for, your sake, for your sake, I hope he doesn't try to hang on longer and longer and longer yeah, than right. eventually he sees Absolutely. the writing on the wall uh, so that things can uh, proceed in a more orderly, you know, this order revolution of order can proceed as orderly as possible. Yeah, as possible. Uh, so, so uh, our best wishes with you. Uh, we certainly salute the courage of the Belarusian people and going out into the streets and, and enduring the, the attacks of the police uh, for their freedom. And uh, I, I have to say, you know, I, I'm sort of, a, I consider myself a child of the fall of communism. You know, I was off at college right. in 1989 and, you know, the I, I actually missed it. It happened, it happened. I was studying you know, I was immersed in <laughs> I was immersed in fifth century Athens, and I I, okay. so I was walking. I, was, I remember walking down the street, and one of my friends saying, "Hey, did you see on TV last night when the Berlin Wall came down?" And, oh, you really? Know, <laughs> imagine somebody standing there, just totally the shocked expression on my face because right. this, you know, is such a big unexpected event, just like you know, okay. happened magically like that. So, you know, I remember sort of growing, coming of age, as it were, in this magical era where dictatorships were falling, you know, one after another, after another for a, period, a fairly long period of time there. And it sort of stalled out in the last 10 years. And I'm, but 
this is really something that gives me a lot of hope uh, and sort of renews my optimism that this hasn't really stalled out in the longest time scheme, that, right. that you know, the, the need for freedom is still there and people are still willing to fight for it. That's the, the signal from the Polish television, they want me. Okay, okay. But yes, I'll definitely let you go, but thanks so much for coming on. That's one, one more final thought is uh, when we are down with Lukashenko, please uh, invite us to talk to Americans who still dream about socialism in your country. So you definitely need uh, enhancement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we definitely will. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. This is Slana of the Refuse. Uh, if you enjoyed this program, you can follow us on YouTube. You can follow the podcast. Uh, we're available on Google Play and on Apple iTunes, as well as the link that you'll see below. Uh, and for more ideas and analysis, you can always go to the Trzinski Letter, www.trzinskiletter.com, and you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refuse. I'm Rob Trzinski. Thanks for listening.